You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Humanize Me. I am Bart Campolo. This is my podcast. And if you've listened to it before, you know that it's just a podcast about trying to make the most of this amazing opportunity we call sentient human life um, and trying to make the most of it in a fairly specific way by building loving relationships and by doing stuff that makes a difference for other people and by cultivating a sense of gratitude and wonder because there's a lot of wonder in the universe if you just open your eyes. And uh, this is actually a the no-frills introduction of this podcast because like sometimes I'm like I'm telling you about the documentary which you can check out at campolofilms.org or I'm telling you about the book why I left why I stayed which you could find on Amazon or I'm telling you about my website bartcampola.org where you can check in if you want to be in touch with me or see other episodes or even you know figure out if you might want to get some counseling or coaching from somebody like me because I do that kind of stuff but this time, like, that's as much as I'm going to say about any of that stuff. Because I, I gotta, I, I, I'm having a conversation that I'm going to share with you in just a second. And I mean fast. Because it's, it's a fairly long conversation. And I don't want to wear you out before you get to it. It's me and Pastor Ryan Meeks of the East Lake Community Church in Seattle, Washington. And you might go like, wait, that's a mega church. Ryan Meeks... He, his father runs another megachurch in San Diego. Oh my gosh, Bart's going back evangelical. But it's not true. What's true is that Ryan Meeks started out as just a, you know, a church growth guy. And, and this Eastlake community church of his has gone with him as he has gone on the humanist journey. And he'll talk about it in the conversation. We had a really fun conversation. What's interesting to me is not that he's kind of a deconverted post-Christian like me. That's not interesting. What is interesting is, is that he's got a congregation that, I mean, they didn't all go with him. I mean, he, he, he worked that church down from 5,000 to 500, but he's got a viable, full-on, looks-like-a-church church that's pursuing goodness, not on the basis of what you believe, but on the basis of what you value. And um, he's just a beautiful person. Like Pete Rollins got in touch with me a few weeks ago and said, listen, there's this person that you need to know and you're going to like him. And, you know, Pete Rollins is, a, you know, he people think he's such a great mind and he's so interesting and he's so fun to listen to. And that's all true. But Pete Rollins is also a very, very good friend and a very good person. Um, you know, you can't say just cause somebody sounds good on the podcast or they write cool things doesn't necessarily mean they're as lovely. I mean, I hear people on in the media all the time and I'm like, I wonder what they're really like. Pete Rollins, he has a good gut sense of who I am. And so when he tells me, Bart, you will love this person. I take it real seriously. I called Ryan up. We started talking and we, we, we're talking about all sorts of stuff. Like, we're now great friends. But this is the online conversation. I said, like, I want to record one of these conversations because I just think there's something there for the people that I hang out with. So here you go. This is me and Ryan Meeks. You don't know him, but you will. And I'll see you on the other side. When somebody asks you the question, like, tell me the story, where do you start, yeah. where do you start the story? It depends on who's asking. Like for Ken Wilber, you know, I, I probably got rid of a lot of details that are just not interesting to people if they don't come from an evangelical background. Um, and then, of course, with the deconstruction, I very much started with, hey, I planted a church in the evangelical church growth vein. You know, I was in that that tree. And uh, so you start there. So it just depends. It depends on who's asking. And, and like, I mean, I know that you started you planted a church. It's, we never start yeah. a church. We plant a church. Oh, absolutely. Or launch. Launch. That's another. <laughs> so I know, I know that you did this church plant. What, what year was it that it started? 
Uh, we moved from San Diego to Seattle in 2004, and then we officially opened publicly, started having public services in 2005. But did somebody invite you to Seattle, or did you just feel this is where we should go? I, my wife and I both grew up there, and um, we had been uh, living in San Diego. My dad's a pastor of an evangelical megachurch in the San Diego area but had been a part of a fast-growing church in the 70s and 80s, 90s, up in the Seattle area when, all through when I was growing up. They moved to San Diego when I was in high school. Anyway, fast forward, my wife and I were working on his staff in San Diego, and we always kind of knew we wanted to get back to Seattle. That's where our friendship network was. That's you know was always home for the both of us. And so for us, it was like whenever we'd come up and visit, we'd feel like, man, there's nothing up here that um, speaks to our sort of generation in a sense that like, Hey, how do we look at Jesus shaped spirituality? That isn't, um, I guess in those days I would say that, you know, most churches were like your service is on Thursday nights in the fellowship hall at seven twenty-two. you know? And, and so I wanted something for us, not, I don't we weren't youth anymore and we were married with kids, but there, everything was just so boomer focused. So that's sort of the, um, that and the fact that a lot of my friends were not connected to any sort of spirituality whatsoever. I was like, well, you know, maybe we do something where, um, it's attractive to those folks. So that's how it started. So it's you and your wife moving back to Seattle to start this yeah. thing. And, 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 about and nine friends of ours. And since your dad was a big hotshot evangelical Christian leader, yeah. I, I can relate you to that. You know anything about that? I do know a little bit about <laughs> that. But the, it's funny that that movie about me and my dad just got yeah. released. Um, oh, we did good. Yeah, and I, I, I and I talked about it this week at over Christmas, by the way. Okay, well, I, I I just put you on the list of people to get sent a screener, so you'll yes. yeah yeah yeah, okay, so you get. But um, but so here's the weird thing: it's like when you left, you, like anytime I did anything in my life, people were like, "Is this a reaction to your dad?" Like yeah, you know, right, I could be 55 sure. years old, and people are like, "Are you st- you know, are you still working things out with your dad?" But yeah, like totally. when when you left your dad's church to go to Seattle, did people? Mm-hmm. Was it seen as like he's breaking free or he's he's rebelling against the old man? Or, or, or was this like part of your dad's master plan for world domination? Actually, my dad didn't want me to go. He was he, he loves his grandkids. He's a great dad and he's a great grandpa. And um, so he was super bummed at me. Go. We were close, just like you and, yeah. and your dad. I think we were you know, co-laborers, you know, and, uh, I loved working with him. He's a great guy. I learned so much about leadership and faithfulness to a group of people, uh, working for him, but he was actually the one who encouraged me. He said, uh, I think the, I told him, I was like, oh, I don't think I want to do it. And he said, if you knew it would work, would you go? And I said, yes. And then he said, well, then you have to go. Cause otherwise you're letting fear rule you. And he's like, I don't want you to go at all, but you know, you got to go. So in a lot of ways, my dad's responsible for all of this garbage. <laughs> wow. And and so so then you go up to Seattle and you launch this thing. Yep. In 2005. Mm-hmm. And did yeah. it, and, and, and my, like, the, the word on the street has it that it, it sold like hotcakes. Like people. Ooh, you betcha. It was a big, <laughs> like it was, was it big right out of the gate? Um, it, I guess at first I'd say no, but based on the average size of church in America, yes. I mean, we we went from, in the first year, we went from 150 at our first service to, I think, four or 500. And then in the next year, we went from 500 to 1,000. And then, you know, I don't know, by 2008, we had moved into a warehouse that we uh, were leasing, and we were over 2,500. So... And how, and how how big how big did it get? Five thousand. Yeah, um, would be like we would average in the high four thousands, like for like ten weeks at a time, um, or have an Easter of like eighty five hundred or something. But but in general, we were a four thousand five thousand person church on the weekend. And and then you started to blow it up. Yeah, yeah. So now what I want to know is like do, like. <laughs> <laughs> did did you know like like when I look back at my life, yeah. there were cracks in my foundation from so far back. That, yes, that yes. like everyone if, wants to know the moment, and there's no moment. Man. If if I had been paying attention, I would have 
I would have started a different career because I would have known that I wasn't going to make it to the finish line as a, as a Christian leader. But, um, but, but how cracked was your foundation when you're at 5,000, when you're four or 5,000 people? Oh, dude, I was, it was over already. That was, the, in fact, you know, the people who um, sort of are still a little bit wounded or they would say betrayed because of how much I've changed, they are, they're missing an era of the church when I hated my life. Uh, I was like totally dying inside. You know, mega church, you know, I don't want to universalize my experience. I'll say as a evangelical megachurch pastor, multi-site megachurch, is that you're so inhuman that you are either Jesus Christ superstar or Satan incarnate. There's no humanity to it. So you're so big and so important, or you're so evil and doing it wrong that there's no way for you to. There's it's hard to find a circle where you can be honest because if you if you're struggling. You know, everybody jumps on. And if you're this arrogant, you know, leader or strong leader, even you're an arrogant leader. And, you know, there's just no winning in the in this caricature. It's so funny because like you started where I would have stopped. Like the Dunbar number is 150, like tribes, groups of people. Yeah. They can function on the basis of personal relationships and connections right. up to about 150, and then once you cross, like once you cross that number, everything changes. And it, like you, you were quickly in the realm of you're not you're not personally connected to everybody on the team. Yeah, and I'll say that was part of the strategy. I mean, I didn't just come out of evangelical theology. I would even say we were on the outside, fringy edge of that in the sense that we were church growth, you know, mindset. I, you know, I would, I had mentorships with, um, you know, names every, everyone in that world would know yeah. at their house or, you know, and they're like trying to bring me under their wing. Like here's the point is to grow a rapidly growing large, um, church that you have know, converts, <laughs> you know? So, uh, there's, there's a, there's a playbook and, and, uh, it's, you and I have talked about this. They're good at it, and, and people need to start paying attention rather than trying to throw the whole thing out. There, there's, there's juice. There's energy. There's power in some of these things that doesn't have to be coercive and evil, but sometimes some of these, like in, in maybe in your view and my view, that are a little bit more beautiful and redemptive and good for the world, we don't want to touch anything that smacks of that, and we're missing out on some of the tools and the wisdom in it. Well, and, and, and the fact of the matter is, is those things grow because they, they exploit weaknesses and gaps in people's lives. Absolutely. And you know, like if you just are filled with compassion and you see people walking around with gaps and, and, and holes in their lives and pain, yeah. you go like, maybe we should try to meet those needs and fill those gaps. Like totally. not, not necessarily because it'll grow something, just because exactly. like those are human, they're, those are, they're in our tribe. Yep, you can, it can either be a loving action or it can be a hustle. And the yeah. question is, what's the motivation, right? Yeah. I was just, the same thing for the wrong reason. Soren Kierkegaard had this great quote years ago. It said, uh, he who cannot seduce a man cannot convert him either. <laughs> oh, jeez. And what he's basically saying is like, look, it's all manipulation. The difference yeah. between ministry and, um, and exploitation is when you exploit somebody, you manipulate them for your benefit. And when you minister to somebody, you manipulate them for their own benefit. But either way, you're trying to move somebody from where they are into a different way of thinking or a different way of life or a different set of relationships. And so like, yeah. you know, like, like the idea that you're going to try to move people is, is neutral. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's how and why you move them. Everybody's doing it. I mean, yeah. you guys are on fantasy football yelling at each other, essentially trying to convert one another to their view of how an offensive uh, coordinator should operate. I mean, we all do it. It's a human condition. Think like me, you morons, you know? Yeah. So, so, so when you church, Johnny church, church growth up there in Seattle <laughs> and the, and the sucker grows and grows and grows. And I guess one of the things that isn't part of the formula yeah. is for you to become an increasingly human person who's thinking about life with an open mind. And it sounds like by the t by the time you got to the place where it was really big, 
you were miserable. Yeah, well, it's. I think it started when we were finally at the size where we weren't setting up and tearing down, and I had a staff of more than four people. That was the first time that I could take a breath and think for myself and start addressing some questions that I had time to read and study about. Before mm-hmm. that, I'm just tyranny of the urgent. We had 150 new people this weekend. How do we assimilate all of this massive growth? That kept me you know, trapped in the tyranny of the urgent. But once I had a staff and thousands of people and an actual budget to just stop and you know go read all those books I wasn't supposed to read by Brian McLaren or whatever, uh, then they start harping on those like open wounds that I've been trying to ignore about why does God expect me to care more about people than God does? You know, why am I like I waking up in the middle of the night sweating and crying about the lost that a loving God is going to send to hell? All of a sudden that dissonance just I couldn't overlook it anymore. I was like, I have to have an answer for this that that satisfies my my heart. And I wasn't finding them. And like you, falling out of the tree of Christianity, you know, grabbing onto the branch of Karl Barth or, you know, in my scenario, maybe Greg Boyd or, or some of these other little bit more um, middle of the road theologies, maybe a softer atonement theory or anything to hang on. I didn't want to lose my Christianity. Um, so I was just trying to save the sandcastle of my faith as the tide of experience and learning and, you know, age and relationship just washed it away. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, what's funny is, is that, um, I was reading up on, on you after we talked the last time and, um, <laughs> no, no. And there are all these articles about, I, I mean, your, your church is a macro version of so many college kids I know where, it was, it was this relatively small issue. Well, not not small for them, but like gay marriage. Yeah, man, amazing. I, I remember telling my dad when my dad was still holding out, like that. You know, he loved gay people, but you know, he thought homosexual sexuality was you know immoral and against God's will. And I remember saying, like, dude, you better get right on this issue, you and your church. Because you are losing more Christians over this issue. Because what happens is they would look at the Bible and they would go, the Bible is patently wrong about gay people. Mm-hmm. Like, I know gay people. I've been in relationships. Like, no way. And once, and once for us evangelicals, once we get a place where the Bible is patently wrong, you go like, wait a second. Are there other places? Because I was always told this book was infallible. Totally. And so, I mean, so for your, your, and your church went through that. We're like, or you as a leader, like it was when you came out on that issue yeah. that, that, the, that the whole house of cards started yeah. to come down. In some ways that's, and you know, when I do interviews, especially with like international news outlets or whatever, that's kind of the fastest way to tell the story. But the truth is, is it, it was precipitated a year and a half earlier when I started to realize that I was so disintegrated on the inside that I was either going to need to resign or integrate and start teaching from my, my understanding. And, um, it started with me teaching, Hey, the Bible's not what we thought it was. And so people started leaving our church over me saying, Hey, no God that looks like Jesus commands genocide. And until, you know, what is Voltaire's thing? Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. To me, it was an issue of like planetary safety. We cannot continue saying God sometimes needs to genocide a bunch of people. Like, this is insane. And so people were getting upset about that. And then, you know, there's a year of teaching meditation and the truth in all religion and that kind of stuff that precipitated that. But the Niagara Falls, as you say, uh, was inclusion. Our inclusion statement in January of 2015 was the cardinal sin. People were upset and a few people were leaving over the Bible stuff. But as soon as I said, I will no longer be your hired, you know, hit man to go tell all the gay people that they're wrong. Um, I didn't even tell my church they had to agree with me. I was just like, I, I think it's important to be honest as a leader, and I've changed on this. I'm sorry to those of you in the LGBT community who I have cowardly waited so long. My heart was here years ago, but I was terrified of not only losing my church, but my wife. I don't know 
where my wife would be on this. I, I just, I thought my whole world would evaporate. So as your whole thing's coming to pieces, I guess, was, were you, I mean, I know how it is in, in that situation. You can't talk to anybody. Totally. Oh my God. You can't talk to, I mean, I, I mean, sometimes people call me out of the blue and just oh, like, yeah, I get it all the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I could talk to you. Like, I don't know you, but like, you know, could you talk to like, it sounds like, did your wife even know what was going on with you? Um, there were years where nobody really was quite aware. I've been pretty open with my staff and my wife to a point where like I was honest, like about doubt and, um, sort of my misgivings really, I think that's part of the attraction of our church was that I was really open from day one, like, Hey, who could possibly know these things? This, that, that's silly. So that was part of the, what helped us grow was the admitting that cert certainty is a joke. Um, however, I learned through this experience that you can say that, but then when your operational actual policies change, the truth is certainty was always operative. It's funny how they liked going to like, they like the talking about school. that. Yeah. Oh man, you know, who cares? And we're all sinners. And then as soon as I say like, Hey, you know, my gay friends relationships is a benefit to my life and to our world. They're like, Whoa, the Bible says this. And you know. A very interesting dynamic. I learned a lot about sociology and the psychology of crowd dynamics uh, through this for sure. And, and I think you also learn about yourself that like you tell people you have doubts when they're actually not really like like sometimes doubt was a, a, a great smoke screen. Where I'm like, look, yeah. look, I'm or what I really don't. Yeah, believe. I'm pretty. I don't think this like I don't like, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I, I doubted supernaturalism for a long time, which was like. Yeah a way of me saying, I don't believe in supernaturalism, but I'm not ready to tell you that yet. Absolutely true. That is such an important distinction because you doubt what you believe. And when you say doubt, you sort of leave the opportunity on the table for everyone to hear it in the safest way possible. When the truth was, I didn't doubt these things. I did not believe them any more than I believed the Polynesian god, Pona, or whatever his name was, was going to send me anywhere either you know like this was just a non-operative yeah idea yeah but it, it, yeah it, it, and and, and it's, it's interesting i was talking to this gang leader um earlier and uh he was talking about how when people were in white he had been he he, he works with a group called life after hate and he was like a hardcore like you know, in and out of prison, just beat the hell out of all sorts of people. But he, he, he in his group, he's got all these guys from the Aryan Brotherhood and these white supremacist groups. And he said, the weird thing is, he said, I feel like we need to teach people to to not condone that behavior, but but not to condemn it either. Not to con not you can condemn the behavior, but not to condemn the people, because you know. Okay. And one of the things he was talking about was that. There's this sense in which when somebody is in doubt or when somebody has, they've lost their faith, they're very vulnerable. Totally. And if, and if the people like, so I'm in church and I don't believe in God anymore. And then the people that are on the outside that don't believe in God, look at me and go like, Oh, Hey, church guy, you suck for not believing in God. You are an idiot. You are they're, 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 like, all of a sudden I'm really in trouble because yeah. I got nowhere to go because the people that I thought might be my friends, just because I still have the trappings, they're telling me they hate me. Yep. And totally. We need to do a lot much better job understanding the psychology of how people change their minds if we're going to help people leave abusive, unhealthy ideologies. Because shaming people, you know, you want to go down the Bill Maher route where you just shame people who don't think like you, you change nothing. You change. In fact, you drive people back deeper. in. You drive them back in. Yeah, I, mean, I, I know people that were poking their heads out, and then when they saw the way they got treated, yeah, they were like, "I got to go back in because at least, at least in there, I'm, I'm safe." Um, totally. I'm always shocked by the amount of people who embrace evolution, but then don't understand social or or a psychological cultural evolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No.
It's like, dude, this is a slow process, and you got to give people time to marinate in ideas that are completely undermining not only their worldview but their identity because the two are one and the same. Yeah. Yeah, and and and, and, and so there you are. You're going through it, and you're not like you're still you're doubting and and at what point like who do you come clean with first your staff your wife do you publicly and then you come home and say honey i should have probably told you sooner like how did it like who was the first person that you were really my wife okay and she it scared her for sure um we were in a uh an interesting that was probably the hardest season of our marriage was us trying to figure out where was this headed and you know she was of course afraid for me for a number of reasons some of those were evangelical like my salvation or whatever some of those were practical Uh, like you're gonna lose your job yep and we're gonna lose our whole world our our friends our family everyone is evangelical that's what's funny about the critics they're like oh you just capitulated a culture on gay marriage i'm like what the hell do you think my culture was my culture was evangelical megachurch i wasn't a movie producer in west hollywood for god's sake my culture was evangelicals, and my culture bit my damn head off. You know, like what? What are you smoking? I wasn't. When I published, you know. when I published uh, the, the book with my dad, which is, you know, you know, when I published the book, I got letters from people um, saying, "You just gave up Christianity for the money." Like, you, you know, like, look, you, this is just an opportunity for you to write a book and get written up in the New York Times, and like, you're just seek. And I was like, just rolling in it, aren't you? I was like, do you have any idea how yeah. good I had it in that world? Yeah. And how, no and there's nothing for me out here. So, you know, like yeah. what, what, you gotta be kidding. And that's what my mom says. My mom says, the, the way I know that my son genuinely doesn't believe in God is like, <laughs> there was nothing to, like, if, if, if he had any belief left, believe me, he would have held, yeah. you know, he could have held the fort. Absolutely. I mean, we lost so much and, and, you know, all I've experienced over the last, you know, four years is the loss of income, you know, and trying to figure out, okay, what does it look like to go part time? And so was there, was there, was there any moment like where your wife's looking at you and going like, I have some of those same concerns, but I don't want to go down that road. Like for sure. Yeah. And that happened pretty quickly. Um, she didn't say like, you're stupid. She didn't say like, you're stupid or you're, or or what's wrong with you. She was just like, listen, let's not go there. Yeah, for sure. Let's stay here. And to be honest to, to this day, she's in many ways, there's a push and pull. Like she, she leads me in some, you know, things, even with the LGBT thing, she got there so fast relationally. It, I had to study my way to some sort of way of explaining it in my head, but re- relationally with close friends of ours, I mean, she just crossed that bridge without, she didn't need anybody to teach her something on it. She just fell in love with human beings and was like, this is ridiculous. They're a gift, you know? So it depends on what part of the journey, but sometimes she's ahead, sometimes I'm ahead, and sort of we, you know, pull each other along. But even just last night, we were just marveling, like, it. we just feel so blessed to have stayed together. I, could, I don't, I'm amazed that anyone stays together over the long haul. If you're going to go on a journey of soul discovery with well, you, two totally different people, how do you do it? No, you know, I mean, you know, I counsel all sorts of people in that, yeah. in that space. And so many of them don't make it. Um, yeah. And it makes tons of sense to me. But when they, when, when people do, it's, it, I mean, like, you know, my wife and I, like we, we push pulled and like we went back and forth. Like she was, a, she was ahead of me all the way out. Yeah. except when it came time to like, I got to tell people I'm out. And then she's like, no, 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 no. Like, yeah, this is going to go bad. <laughs> this could be private. Um, yeah. You know, when I told my staff what I was gonna, that I was going to start saying this stuff publicly, I literally told them like, it's time to vote me off the island. Like, I don't pretend like I own this thing. So you guys, if you want to stay employed here and keep doing this, just, I just will kick me out. Peacefully. Yeah, just kick me out. Uh, I promise you, if you just say like, you know, it's probably best for you to go, you're chaos. Then go for it. But it was like, and I even let them do it like totally anonymously, like no one would ever find out. Everyone just vote. Ryan stays or Ryan goes. And it was like Spartacus, you know, people standing up. I'm Spartacus. <laughs> people were like, no way, dude, we're here. This, we're committed to this and let's go for it. Which is, you know, in many ways, here we are in 2018. I can't believe we made it this far. And well, I mean, a yeah. community of 500 to 800 people still go to this thing. I'm like, what the hell? How did that happen? <laughs> the the fact that your staff stayed with you is less surprising to me 
than your wife. Because by the time you drew that staff together, mm-hmm. sometimes, like, even though you say, you know, it's, it's almost like people have gaydar and like, even the person does, <laughs> even the person doesn't know they're gay, but like a good gay friend of mine would be like, oh, you know, he'll figure it out in a year or two, but like, he's gay. Um, <laughs> and I think sometimes people like us who are drawn into faith communities because we love the value system and we love ministry and we love bringing yeah. people together and seeing it transform their lives. Sometimes they rec like somebody who might come to work with you, like recognizes like it's not really driven by a belief in a supernatural God. And he's not saying that maybe he doesn't even know that yet, but they know that. And so by the time you're you- right, you're totally on the money. Yeah. I mean, I experienced that many times over people going, I know you, I knew you would get here. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Yeah. They're like, oh, I remember listening to you preach a couple years ago thinking, oh, he doesn't believe that. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, these people are just like tolerating me. They're like, yeah, but you were on your way. I remember getting thrown out of a youth conference I was speaking at. Um, I spoke three times and before the fourth time, they just, the, the leadership came and said, you got to leave. <laughs> um, and I said, I said, why? I haven't said anything that's, you know, because I, I, w- I knew how to preach in the middle in, or in, 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 in the title zone between what yeah. they believe. And they said, yeah, we know that you haven't said anything, but we can tell you're not really a Christian. Awesome. You're not one, you're not one of us. And wow. I didn't know it at the time. My daughter was with me. We were sort of like, how can they say that about me? Like, look at my life. I'm working with poor people. I'm doing that. Yeah. But, yeah. what, but what they knew was they were like, it, it, we're not saying you don't do really Christian type things. Yeah. We're saying that you're not motivated by your faith in God. Mm. And I was like, they were right. Yeah. And I didn't know it. I didn't know it. But like, you know, yeah. so I'm guessing some of these people came to work for you. They probably weren't motivated by their faith in God either. They were motivated by just their humanity. And they were like, ah, but there's a Christian leader I can work with because he's not going to, he's not, he's not going to invoke supernaturalism as to why we should treat people this way or that way. He's just going to do it on common sense. Yeah. No, that I can definitely see that as being a certain possibility with many, many people on our team for sure. But I'm still freaked out. I'm still freaked out that on the other side of it, that you're left with a congregation of like five or 800 people that get together, what, yeah. every, every Sunday? Uh, not quite. I mean, we cancel a lot of weekends that are just like, you know, busy weekends or garbage weekends. Um, so, and plus we've been telling our people for years, like if you go to church every week, you must not be listening because, you know. You, you should like, have some friends. Vacation and, yeah, do something <laughs> else. Like, uh, you must be thinking that there's somebody taking attendance in the sky, um, and that's the last thing we're trying to do. I mean, I remember I did a message on stop tithing to the angry God. Like, I, I was telling people, like, don't we're not going to cash your checks for you know fifty seven dollars and thirteen cents because that sounds like you're tithing, like like you're worried about a special number, you know, that you got to get in the blessings on or whatever. And to, that's like blood money, you know. If you feel like you need to give to the angry God. Go give it somewhere else because I don't want to be a part of that abuse anymore. No. And <laughs> which makes it hard to run a church, by the way, when you tell people to stop tithing and that they don't need to show up every weekend and that, uh, you know, we don't have the right religion that gets them into heaven. People start to wonder, um, hey, what are you what are you doing again? What What is this thing about? Really? Because like I keep I, I like the, the guiding the, the the guiding hope of my life is that if you create an experience for people that genuinely is transformative where they go like, mm-hmm. because I go there, yeah. I'm a better person and my life is more rich and full and my children are learning values that I love. And, yeah. uh, this thing enriches it's the NPR model where you go like, because I love this thing and it makes my life better, I will support it. I have, yeah. I, I have thought that the real problem with secular gatherings is not that secular people won't give money, but rather that, um, or, or not that you have to like threaten people with going to hell. <laughs> but the problem is, is that a lot of the secular congregations I've been to don't provide a transformative experience. Totally. Oh yes, for sure. And I, I, I'm, but I'm convinced that if you provide and, and, and again, I don't want people coming every week. I don't want, I don't want people, you know, um, feeling any obligation, but I, I, I do, I just have the sense of like, if you create something that's meaningful, people go like, that's my thing. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And we and again, we're living proof of that. I mean, there's just we have no business. We we didn't start even as an episcopal church with like really liberal theology. I mean, we were a massive evangelical read fundamentalism with cool genes. Yeah. <laughs> uh and now we're what we whatever we are now. And it's like the fact that we could do make that kind of a turn, I think says that culture's is on a big shift. Now now somebody's going to go to your website. They're going to listen to this podcast. They're going to go to your website, and they're going to find the yeah. Jesus paragraph. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, they're going to find the yeah. Jesus paragraph, and they're going to be confused. They're going to say, like, wait a second. I thought this guy was kind of post-supernaturalist. I thought he was kind of yeah. post-Christian. Mm-hmm. And, I, yeah. and, and it sounds like the, you know, and they're going to say, like, why is that there? And, and like, I, yeah. I, I actually think it makes sense that it's there because. Yeah, me too. So, so, but can you explain it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was all written before, done, ready to go without that paragraph first. And then I realized, you know, part of our role, uh, our gift to the world at this point, is to help people who want to find their way out of the woods of Christianity um, to make it out. But those are their metaphors. And if you can use their metaphors to get them out, um, it why not? It's, you know, uh, I, I don't care what metaphors people use. What what we're not doing is using Jesus language because it's the only language or what have you. I mean, I also speak in English, not because it's the best language, but because I live in a part of the world where that's the easiest way to communicate these ideas. And most people, even if they didn't grow up in church, most people in America have a Christian vocabulary when it comes to spirituality. At least it's one of the spiritual languages they speak. And so... For us, we just realized, like, okay, just like we use English, um, we need to be able to use Christian metaphors to point to the same things that we're talking about. But it's all about values. It's not about beliefs. We're, I don't care if somebody attends our church l- believes in a literal resurrection any more than I care if somebody goes to our church, uh, has no supernatural beliefs, or is an energy worker— in some new age thing. It just is irrelevant. But what if what if those two people are sitting next to each other and they start talking about their problems and the one guy says to the other guy, well, you know, you just need to trust in Jesus because um, he raised people from the dead and yeah. he can heal your little baby of, of leukemia. And the other person goes like, I thought I was safe. Yeah. Well, uh, my response to that would be, you're going to have to have a really small group of people to control those kinds of conversations. And in my experience, if you're going to reach large groups of people with a good news message, which I think humanism or whatever you want to call what we're doing, uh, I want to reach as many people as possible. And so I have to let go of controlling the side conversations that happen. I'm not going to let that guy come up and grab the mic and tell everybody that if you just pray, your kid will get healed from cancer. Um, But... Those, those, but you don't, yeah, those right. conversations are going to happen. I'm just not going to worry myself about, uh, you know, but sort of as long as as long as the mess, as long as the the kind of the overriding narrative of the group is, mm-hmm. hey, you know, we human people solve human problems and like we're, we're yeah, and and you know these silos that we've got where it's like, well, we're the we're the Pentecostal Baptists and we're the Evangelical Christians and we're the secular humanists. Uh, I'm sure there's a place for like closing the door on groups of people or whatever, but I think if something's being led in a clear direction, but anyone can be there, that's what's redemptive. I mean, that's, you know, to use Christian language again, prophetic. Whether If it's like you can't be here if you believe Jesus literally rose as a corpse walking out of the grave, you know, like that, that kind of control is, uh, first of all, it's, I, I decline the job offer. Sounds like a terrible job, policing who can attend your event. Um, but I, I have more faith in people's ability to discern the difference between the dude sitting next to you and the person up front, you know, leading or cultivating the community experience. I, yeah. I mean, like, we're going to play this kind of music. We're going to yeah. we're going to talk this way. And like, if somebody wants yeah. to come who's a metalhead to our polka, yeah. our polka concert. Yeah. All right. You're welcome. Like, we're not going to be playing any metal, but like, you're welcome. You know, yeah, you can go to a Mexican restaurant and prefer Italian food, but they're going to still cook burritos in the back. Right. <laughs> That's what we make That's here. That's what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. And so I love using Christian language. I think we need to do a better job of using it. Um, uh, at the end of the day, I think so much of the world conflict is about an argument about which which uh, metaphors we're trying to use for the same stuff. Um, and so 
yeah, I mean, I'm committed to it. Some days, as we talked about before, you and I, some days I just want to just throw up two middle fingers and be like, I'm done. I cannot keep having this fucking, sorry. No, this, it's all right. This. It is a fucking conversation. Conversation. I just get so tired of the the arguments that go nowhere and, and aren't helping anyone. Um, but because, I mean, look what's going on in our country right now, the way that spirituality is being hijacked for hatred and bigotry and fear. I mean, somebody, and maybe it doesn't have to be me forever, but somebody has to be saying, like showing a way out to people who are still on the inside. One of my buddies uh, who pastors in Nashville, he likes to use the Underground Railroad metaphor for this. Like, dude, we got out, but we got to help people out. And um, yeah, it's I think not that's... a fun job always. No, but, but the other things too is the people that are all the way out, like the people, you know, the Sunday Assembly people, or in, and the Oasis yeah, yeah, people, yeah. and and yeah. um, you know, Greta, yeah, Greta, wonderful people mm-hmm. that are trying to. One of the problems that they'll often come back to me and go is like, we need to come up with kind of a secular spirituality. Like we need music. We need, totally. we need yeah. large group rituals. We need the kind of, yes. because like, that's not Christian technology. That's human technology. That's just people being together. But Absolutely. we don't have any place to kind of try those things out because, you know, a lot of the people that are in those things, they're not really open to messing around with spirituality. Whereas, whereas your congregation is kind of this amazing test zone where like yeah. the people come like they like you can sing songs. You probably sing songs every week. Yeah, we do. And, yeah. and they're aimed at emotionally lifting people into a, a different way of thinking about their lives. Yep. And absolutely. You, and, and there's quotes from Yogananda and Alan Watts and Carl Sagan and we you know, we have sacred readings of a Carl Sagan quote. <laughs> but then in the next thing I'll have something from Jesus or the Buddha or you know, we're, we're into whoever inspires us, whether it's Chance the Rapper or Ozzy Osbourne. I, I, one of my benedictions not long ago was an Ozzy Osbourne song. And so, but again, like I, I, I went to lines. I went to church growth, hyper evangelical, like believed in original sin and Jesus's resurrection. And they were also quoting all those people to show how hip and cool they were. But it was a facade. Yeah. <laughs> It was a manipulation yeah. to make it seem like they were open to everybody, but like in yeah. the end, they were going to suck you in with like, but this is the one truth that is crucial. Right. Is a, is yes. a, is a great difference between saying like, actually, we're kind of evidence-based here, mm-hmm. and actually, yeah. we're, we're kind of like going with the data, and we're trying to see what causes human beings to flourish, and occasionally, one of those Jesus quotes is the simplest way of saying something that causes people to flourish, so we're going to use it. Or, or it's, you know, I, I was, I was talking to a guy the other day and I, we were trying, we were talking about the idea of learning to care about other people. And he was like, is yeah. there, is there any exercise that I can do? Cause he said like, I need a practical way. I don't care enough about other people. And I said, well, you know, something I've done with a lot of my friends that I've done myself is occasionally I'll go to a high school game, like a girl's basketball game, which I have no rooting interest in. I don't know either. I don't know anybody. I don't know the schools. I don't know any of the players. Yeah. And I'll just pick a kid and I'll be like, that's the one I'm going to root for. And, awesome. and I, you know, if I, I, t- I used to take my, one of my kids with me or something and I go, we're going to root for that kid. And we would then spot their parents in the stands. Like we, and, and, we, and we would, and we, when the kid would get put out of the game, we would watch them sitting on the bench. And when they would put them in, we would cheer. And, and the interesting thing is, of course, by the end of the game, yeah. if that kid scored a point, like we, we just were, it, we weren't <laughs> pretending to care at that point. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You get, you know, tied in. You get invested. Yeah. And the guy said to me, I said, I said, so you, what you're saying is, is that sometimes you don't just invest in things you care about. You end up, you invest in something first and you end up caring about it. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah. I said, where a man's treasure is, yeah, I was just there will his like, there will his heart be also. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. like, you know, I think Jesus said that. Absolutely, that's but, what I love about Ken Wilber. Is, you know, one of his. I mean, I think he's the most brilliant human being alive today. But I, I, you've probably heard him say, um, "No one's smart enough to be wrong a hundred percent of the time." Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Like, you can learn from anyone, any tradition, no matter how full of error it is. No one is smart enough to be wrong 100%. Well, and the interesting thing is, if that's a hypothesis that Jesus, the scientist, put out there, yeah, I, I, I you know, I hypothesize that where a person 
heart is, where a person's yeah. treasure is, their, their heart will go also. I got, I got a lot of data. I got the Harvard study. I got, I got a billion studies that would suggest that that's exactly true. All of Danny Kahneman's work about behavioral economics, like, like, listen, my friends, like it just turns out that hypothesis is evidence, you know, the evidence supports it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What was intuited is now proven. So, so there you are running what (laughs) I would call, um, kind of. I don't know. I don't know whether you call it a secular community or a humanist community, or I don't even know what you call it at this point. Yeah. Um, but it's, I, I, in fact, we're we're deliberately avoiding that labeling because it allows for the biggest sort of door to you know. Yeah. Did I lose you there? No, no, I'm still here. I hear you. Can you hear me? Oh my, my phone is interrupting there. Sorry about that. Yeah, let me take that again. Yeah, we're deliberately trying to avoid certain labels so that the door is as wide as possible. Like. You know, let's say this person loves it, and so they tell their friend, you should come, and they exp- explain what it is based on what their idea is, which is what's going to get their friend. But this other person, like my buddy Miles, who's a Tibetan Buddhist, he may invite his friend, but he's going to describe it about how it helps his Tibetan Buddhism flourish. And so I don't want – I wouldn't want to, you know – try to drill down so specifically that it's it's only my definition come experience it you know we are a co- the uh, collection of our lived experience whatever that is to you if you find that helpful fantastic join us <laughs> so how you doing now in, in terms of person. yeah 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 because like you know when you when it was five thousand people and you felt like you were at war with your own soul yeah that wasn't good how, how you doing now I'm doing good. Uh, I've been to some pretty intense therapy at the end of 2015. After all the like hate and and people, I mean, yelling at the yelling me at the gas station, like it was pretty intense for a while, and death threats and stuff like that, betrayals from close friends. Um, over, over the gay over the gay mar- over the gay marriage thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Specifically. Yeah. Um, you know, because we lost thousands of people and millions of dollars that year. Um. And so after I went to that therapy, my wife went as well. We went separate weeks. Um, I think that was really healing for us is just sort of deal with some stuff that um, we needed professional help to sort of put to bed the wounding and all that. And um, and then I would also say that in the same breath, all of that pain was liberating because we had to be sort of kicked out, like drop kicked out of evangelicalism to in order to leave completely. I and that was my world, and so I wanted to find a way to redemptively stay. And I kind of needed, you know, just to get drop kicked out and told I'm not allowed to return in order to finally walk out and go, okay, what else is available to me? You know, I, I think of the movie The Village, you know, M. Light Shyamalan's movie, where, uh, you know, you're not supposed to go into the woods because there's the monsters out there. And then, of course, you find out illness drives her out, and you find out, oh, it's all mythology to keep people trapped in. Talk about mirroring my life experience (laughs) there's a whole world of wonderful people out here and wonderful ideas and helpful ways to engage the world in love and so now i feel great you know things are good we know who our friends are we know what we're trying to do in the world and uh we're just liberated like you said in your book which i just so loved um it's going to be so much easier i don't know how you phrased it but to get people to get on board when we're talking about values instead of needing to agree on belief, you know? And oh, yeah. I, I'm living that freedom right now, and it is so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my sense is that the group of people that you have, not, not just your staff, but also like the 500 or so people that come, like there's probably, yeah. my sense is that they're a very warm yeah. group of people. And so you can sort of meet some, you know, somebody in a, on the street or somebody who's struggling and say, listen, who's lonely and say like, you know, you should come to this thing. Like yeah. there's a lot of really nice people there. People will be really nice to you and you yeah. can pretty much be comfortable that if they walk in the door, somebody will greet them. Somebody will be nice to them. If they sit down next to somebody, you know, um, somebody might invite them out to dinner afterwards. Um, yeah. and that's just such a powerful tool to have when you're yeah. walk, walking in a world full of sad, lonely, alienated people is to be able to just, cause you know, just, just to be able to say something, Oh, you don't have any friends. I have this whole group of friends and they would like, and you can come and, and to not have to invite them, you know, 
such a high bar to say, come to my house or come like, like, cause yeah. you, you don't know them well enough yet, but like to be able to go like, there's this yeah. safe zone where I can bring you in that third space. Yeah. It's important. No, absolutely. I, I can see where that would be for somebody who used to wake up in the middle of like crying about people going to hell, you know, yeah. I, cause I still wake up in the middle of the night with people on my mind who are just, yeah. who are just yeah. out there, just lonely. Yeah. Just don't have anything. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty powerful to be able to invite them into something. Yes, um, totally. And to know that we don't have to sell a bunch of stuff we don't believe in to get them to feel cared for and to help them connect with some way of telling a sacred story about the world and their life that yeah. allows them to find us some hope, you know? I do think one of the tasks on our desks right now is to be able to tell a framing story, a sacred narrative that's evidential, that's evidence-based. Um, you know, it's such a huge story. Big history is gorgeous. It's, I think it's a better and broader story than we've ever had. It, not only is it, you know, universal size, but it incorporates, or to use Ken Wilber's phrase, it transcends and yet includes all stories. And so it has room for everyone. And, but we're not telling it in a sacred way yet. I think Brian Swim, who is the mathematical cosmologist at California Institute of Integral Studies, does the best job. He has that book. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, uh, the Universe is a Green Dragon. No, never it's heard of it. Fantastic. And it's a way of telling the you know Big Bang, Great Radiance, uh, the universal story in a way that's sacred, but evidence-based. And I think that's what we're missing. The poetry, the beautiful mythology um, about what it means to be the universe perceiving itself. You know, the human being is not just in the universe, but of the universe. We're not just on the earth, but we are of the earth. We are the earth developing, you know, uh, self-conscious awareness. Well, that's the, yeah, this old Alan Watts line. You, you are the, you are the universe becoming aware of itself. Yes. Yeah. Now, have you ever read Ursula Goodenough's book? Oh, dude, I was just, uh, finding out today that, uh, that book that I put on hold, uh, got to the library. Oh, I'm so glad because I mean, In your book. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like the sacred depths of nature. She is a pure naturalist. She doesn't believe in any supernaturalism. When she says sacred, she doesn't mean holy. What she means is worthy of our devotion. Yes, yes. And, and I, you know, I, where I think, you know, people like her, people like Bill Plotkin, you know, some of these depth psychologists who are helping us see that that notion of sacredness is central to and when i use the word soul i don't mean something that goes to a heaven place but no. deep sense of who we are in the world um that connects to our lived experience we have to connect that back to nature not because it's the cool sexy new religion but because it's just fact we yeah it's it, it's true it's true yeah yeah no and, th and that's the thing is that is that she, you know one of the things ursula goodenough says that i love is she said the 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 what she calls the epic of evolution. Yes. She said, it's the only narrative that has the potential to unite us. Yes. Yes. Because it is, it is true. Um, and, 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 and no matter where you are, the evidence will point you in the same direction. Um, and so and you can find it in the sacred traditions in different ways. Like we've been scratching at this for a while but we're only now being able to prove it as true. Like, it just baffles me that somehow, you know, early human beings intuited that the stars were our ancestors. Now we know that's a fact. Like, all of the atoms in my body were forged in the death of a star. Like, the periodic table of elements comes from that, and I am made of that. Yeah. And those kinds of things are in the water already, and if we can begin to tell these stories in a way that connects to the evidence, we don't have to get rid of everything. I think that's that's one of my concerns about the pure materialist move is we get rid of myth, and myth is not falsity or falsehood. Myth is, it's so true it can't be told in math truth, you know? Like, um, I think about what we're doing to the planet right now, and I think it's hilarious that evangelicals are, like, denying this, this uh, climate change 
And they're the ones who believe that, you know, because of man's wickedness, God once flooded the earth. I'm <laughs> just thinking, like, they're the ones who wouldn't believe Noah today saying climate change. You know, these stories are alive and well. It would be, it would be, yeah, it would be hilarious if they were not running the administration. Yeah, right, yeah. It's not <laughs> unfortunately. Thank God for people like Joanna Macy and some of the actual earth elders out there who are but, doing but good you, work. But, you know, i got to tell you, like, like, my skin crawls when you use the word myth. Yeah. And, and and then you just find it, and I go like, okay, I, I'm gonna have to, I'm, I'm gonna have to get over some post traumatic myth dif- disorder, because yeah. like, you know, I'm just like, what do you mean a truth that can't be told straight up, you know? Um, but but I mean, I get it. Like I I read novels. It's stories move us. Now I can tell you a bunch of data about what it was like for me to go through cancer, but. There are songs that say it better than I can tell you the data of what I went through. You know, the the, the last part, the part about telling a, a framing narrative, that's where, like, I think I don't need to tell anybody they can't come to my church because, you know, what they believe. But I do want to be able to articulate a framing narrative that I go, like, you know, this is the narrative we're working off. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Without question. And, yeah. And, you know, without a vision, people perish. And meaning, you got to say, this is where we're going. Yeah. You don't I, even have to necessarily agree. You're just looking for relational connection. Great. But just know we're rowing over there. <laughs> yeah, we're going there. And, and, and also know, like, and we're going there. And, and, and the reason why is because the world works this way. Yeah. This is the way the world works. And that's why we're rowing over there. Um, you know, if the world worked a different way, we wouldn't be rowing over there. But like, this is the way the world works. This is the way you work. This is the way people work. Like, that's why we're rowing over there. Um, and, and so it, it, because people ultimately, they, they go like, it's nice that we're rowing over there. But like, why? Yeah. It makes, and, and, and when, and when it, and when the, the ocean gets rough, they need to remind themselves. Oh yeah. That's why we do this. Yeah. Like, you know, cause sometimes I get sick of loving yeah. people. I get sick of reaching out and being good to people <laughs> that treat me like shit. And sometimes I just go like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then I go back and I do the math again. And I'm like, yeah, but then I am, you know what? It still makes sense. Yeah. You know, whether I feel like it or not on any given day, it still makes sense. Um, and it still yep. fits, it still fits with my framing narrative of this is the only life I've got. And this is the way human beings work. And this is how I'm going to flourish. You know, and, yes. and, and I'm becoming more, yes. what I don't know, Ryan, is I don't know how much you guys have gotten into talking about death as a, in your church. But what I find yeah, is that I when you, when you just force me to, when you dispense with the God stuff, you have to start talking about death a lot more and in much more positive ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, I agree. I you, loved your line in your book. Death or love needs a, a deadline. Yeah. I just love that. Yeah, I really believe that. So true. Yeah. And so I, I'm just convinced that like learning to talk about death and, 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 and learning to teach and, and that part of our job as, as leaders is to help people embrace mortality and to go like, yes, yes, your body works less well this year than it did last year. And that's a painful kind of, there's something, you lose something there, but there's something you're gaining in terms of understanding and compassion. And so like, you know, yeah. like, we're not going to deny that we're finite and that we're limited and that we're, decre- we're, 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 we're falling into decrepitude. We got to figure out like, how do I make sense yeah. of that? You know? And that, that yeah, for me, it's just the work of living awake. You know, it's very Buddhist or, you know, I, yeah. Jesus taught the same thing, but just living awake instead of in the automatic mind of our evolution, you know, that prefrontal cortex is where we need to be hanging out. And there are wonderful practices for that. I do it all the time. I, I introduce myself to, I introduce my senile self to my life is one of my practices. So I'll like walk in the house at night and, and be like, this is your son, his name, you know, you know, obviously I'm not doing it like I'm delusional, right? but it helps me stay present in the moment in the same way that like, okay, I'm going to engage today. Like I'm lying on my deathbed. When I interact with people, you know, or different things, it's like fresh. There's no fear when you're about to die. No one can threaten you. Yeah. So you get to engage them as at, at, in their pure essence. And there are tons of practices for that, keeping uh, death at the front of your mind. You know, you got to go back. Like, I have this interview I did a, a few years ago with, a, with a, a, a philosopher named Massimo Pigliucci. 
And he started a, a movement or a, like a website and kind of a movement. He teaches it all over the place called the New, New Stoicism. And he's taken the old Stoic teachings mm-hmm. and he's sort of, you know, but one of the, you know, one of the exercises that he goes through each day is this thing of like, you know, sort of what's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah. And, and working backwards from that and sort of like I could die. And he's like, yeah. it's not the, it's not that bad. That's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you, know, you know, and so, and so it, it, it's just, it's just fascinating this idea of from, because for me, like even that whole business of, um, where I was trying to teach that guy how to care about people and, you know, vicariously yeah. enjoy. Yeah. I was like, I, you know, I said to him, I said, the reason you have to learn this now is because when you get old, really old, you will have no future except other people's. Totally. You have nothing. Yeah. Um, so unless you can identify with a younger person and say, oh, you're still going to fall in love. You haven't fallen in love yet. Oh, man, that's going to be great for you. I, it makes me so excited just to remember falling in love and to think you're going to go through that. Unless you can get excited about somebody else's life. When you get really old, there's nothing to look forward to. There's nothing to be excited about. Totally. So, Absolutely. you know, so, so for not just a good idea for your emotional health. It's again, the way the universe works. It's the way we work. It's the way the universe works. And, like, and so, and so that's, I think for me, the essence of what I feel like you're, 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 you're figuring out at that church is I think you're figuring out, it used to be, how do you help people embrace um, immortality and, and make sense of immortality. And now in a real sense, you're going like, you know what? Part of our framing narrative is that each of us, you know, has a mortal limit and, and how do we embrace that and make, and make, and, 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 and in a sense, not, not, not just accept it, but go like, this is a good thing. Totally. This is a good thing. This is a gift to me. Yeah. This deadline is a gift. Mm-hmm. This pre- the idea, the, the, the preciousness of this time is a gift. Like this, like I am so lucky to be mortal. Um, and and you know, because the other thing is, you're going to make some terrible mistakes. And there's something nice about knowing that there is a moment coming when it won't matter. When <laughs> totally when, when you're when you're going to go to sleep and you're not going to wake up. Yep. You know, and, and so, so I didn't even understand that until I got cancer. And there was a, there was some times when I'm like, man, I finally understand why like some people are like, I'm ready to die. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there is a relief to it. Like, okay, I'm done. I don't have to worry about all this stuff anymore. Yeah. You know, the, 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 uh, Ingersoll, my favorite says, you know, the feast must end. Uh, the now it is the knowledge that the feast must end that treads out the weeds between our hearts. And I just go like, you know, we've all had that experience at a real feast where you go like this, everything was wonderful and I've had enough. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, you know, my, my, my hope, my prayer, my secular prayer is, is that at the end of my life, I will be able to say everything was wonderful. I've had enough. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But I've had enough. Yeah. Hey man, I can't wait to come out there and hang out and be there. I'm, I'm so excited to hang out. I'm just very excited. I, I I'm I'm really looking forward to meeting your wife and and your and your kids and stuff. It's, I'm just I'm just really thrilled to know you. This is just a, a great joy for me. Yeah, thanks, man. And you and you you have so uh, blessed me. And I, your book I've recommended to so many people since I finished it. And uh, like I said, even my dad and I had a great conversation that I hope continues. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. If you and your dad have a great conversation about about that book, that's exactly why it's out there. So I'm, I'm, so, I'm thrilled. Good. All right, baby. I love you. I will talk Thanks, to you man. soon. All right. Love you too, dude. Talk to you Peace. soon. Bye-bye. All right. That was me and Ryan Meeks. And I hope you dug it. Um, doesn't matter. Because as you probably overheard, I dug it. I love I'm so excited. I'm going out. I'm going to go out and speak at this church um, in a few months, and I just can't wait. I'll give you a full report when I get back. And you know what? The next in, in the next podcast, I'll give you a full report on my little fledgling fellowship here in Cincinnati because it's it's amazing. It's like we've got like only like 35 people involved in it, but it's already sort of the center of my 
life and imagination here. I mean, it's already a beautiful thing that's already starting to change some lives, which is, you know, kind of all, what it's all about for me. It's like, it's about growth and positive transformation. I don't want to have a club. I want to have a fellowship. I mean, I want to help each other grow. And that's sort of happening here in a little way. So I'll give you an update on that. I really will. But uh, in the meantime, I'm going to give you a little Ingersoll. Here's the quote. I believe in the religion of the family. I believe the roof tree is sacred. From the smallest fiber that feels the soft, cool clasp of earth to the topmost flower that spreads its bosom to the sun and like a spendthrift gives its perfume to the air. I don't know what that means. I mean, I just started reading. I'm like, I don't know what that means. But I like it. I'm going to read a little bit more just because maybe it, maybe it becomes clear in the next paragraph. The home where virtue dwells with love is like a lily with a heart of fire, the fairest flower in all the world. And I tell you, God cannot afford to damn a man in the next world who has made a happy family in this. God cannot afford to cast over the battlements of heaven the man who has a happy home upon this earth. God cannot afford to be unpitying to a human heart capable of pity. God cannot clothe with fire the man who is clothed the naked here. And God cannot send to eternal pain the woman who has done something toward improving the condition of mankind. Yeah, I, I think, I think what he's, I, and when I say, I don't think he's worried about God damning anybody to hell. What I think he's saying is, is if you care about goodness, somebody who can make a family, it's a beautiful thing. And maybe that's a good quote to end this whole Ryan Meeks thing on because, you know, it's 500 people, but I think he's got a little, I think, I think that's, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make a family for people, some of whom don't have one. And that's what I'm trying to do. I hope that's what you're trying to do. There's a lot of people out there who need to be connected. And they are us, and we are them, and we're going to get better at it. I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org.